Jonathan Omerman, welcome to the new school. You are a rabbi. Um, uh, you live uh, in the Berkeley Hills. Uh, and um, we share in common an interest in the Sufi mystic philosopher Ibn Arabi. And also we share in common an interest in what is called the traditionalist school of philosophy, René Gonon, Fritjof Schoen, uh, those who actually took a lot from Ibn Arabi but have focused on the perennial tradition at the heart of all the great spiritual traditions. Uh, once in conversation, uh, I won't remember your exact words, but you said to me, I'm both a traditionalist and a radical skeptic, and I don't know how to reconcile the two. Oh, actually, I said, and I do reconcile the two. Oh, and you do <laughs> reconcile the two, okay. Well, I strive to. <laughs> I, I don't even try to reconcile. I live with both. You live with both. I live with both, and I don't need to reconcile. Right. Um, I just, you know, Ibn Arabi has this wonderful saying, you have to look at the world with two eyes open. That's right. And so I look at what, one of my eyes is the traditional, tra traditionalist world, and another is the skeptic. You know, um, many years ago, I had a formative uh, incident when a quite well-known rabbi said to me when I was coming to Berkeley, um, you know, I spent 26 years in Jerusalem, which is a very much part of my formation. He says, Jonathan, we all know you're a liberal, but don't forget that at your heart you're a fanatic. <laughs> and he was so true. I mean, for me to hold on to both of those, both the fanatic fundamentalist, not not a ignorant fundamentalist, but a fundamentalist who holds the sacred in great awe and respect, and at the same time a skeptic who's willing to bend the law when, when necessary. You so, were born in Britain. I, I was born in Britain. Um, I escaped at a very early age, went to Israel was a kibbutznik for a while, then I got sick with polio, and then went to Jerusalem and worked in publishing for all those years. You never graduated from college? I, no, I, I never graduated from college. Right. I, I mean, I've been lecturing at colleges and universities for years, but I never graduated. Right. Uh, and I forget the phrase that you used in an interview to describe yourself, uh, uh, but uh, you were ordained a, a rabbi, how? A private ordination um, by, by Rabbi Zalman Schachter. Um, For those who don't know, who was Zalman Schachter? He was born in the Hasidic lineage, um, broke away, and founded the Jewish Renewal Movement, um, which I'm not a member, but he is the president of. And the first time he met me, he wanted to ordain me, and uh, I said no, and I waited seven years. Why did you want to wait? Um, because I wasn't ready. What preparation did you need? I can use the language of the skeptic, which is to clean up my act, and the language of the fundamentalist is to purify my attributes. So I had to clean up my act and purify my um, attributes. Mm -hmm. I had to be much more sexually responsible. I had to be... Um, aware of the power that I, 
that I carry and to be very cautious and, and moderate in its use and, and very direct. Mm. You taught Kabbalah for many years. Yes. You no longer do. I no longer do. And you said to me at uh, a friend's 50th wedding anniversary where we encountered each other and where you were doing a ceremony of recommitment, our friends Charles and Susan Halpern, um, you said to me that it was reading the traditionalist philosopher Fritjof Schoen that gave you an insight into Kabbalah that you'd never had, if I remember correctly. Yes, if I can make a minor correction, insights, many insights. Um, I felt that in some ways the lineage by which Kabbalah has been transmitted and which I received, I received from different lineages, you know, the scholarly Gershom Shalom and the ultra-Orthodox um, Kabbalists, and I said from both of them, in some ways something of the tradition has been distorted or lost um, over, over the generations. And um, some of his insights were extremely um, valuable. What they were, the, the first book that I opened, I know the first book that I opened was uh, Esotericism, Principles and Practice, and it just ch changed my life. Changed my life when I was still thumbing through it in the bookstore. And from then on, I just went um, uh, deeper. An understanding of the, the soul's progress, and especially the virtues of the way. Um, the, the virtues of the way. The obstacles on the way. But it led me into other things. I mean, he wasn't the, the only book um, um, that I read. I mean, I, I had encounters with Sufis, some very powerful encounters um, over the years. Let me say, I've always felt more at ease in meetings with mystics of other traditions than with rabbis of my own tradition. I feel safer. There is a way, and I think they feel the same, by the way. They feel safer with me than with their bishops or with their, um, with their imams. Um, and, and so I've had very powerful connections with Christians and Buddhists and, um, and, and Muslims. Um, Sufis especially. And Why are, do you think that is, especially Sufis? What is it about the Sufi tradition that for you has that special quality of encounter? It's pristine. It's unencumbered. When you read Jewish texts, they're often incredibly encumbered with rabbinic language and associations. And there's almost intentionally difficult of access. Now, I think many Sufi texts are difficult of access for different reasons. Um, the rabbinic texts require a lot of rabbinic knowledge, whereas the Sufi texts require a lot of understanding, understanding of the path, um, and very often guidance, a teacher to open the, open the doors for you. Speaking of, of Jewish uh, philosophers, uh, um, one of 
uh, Ibn Arabi's contemporaries, Ibn Arabi was, a, as we know, a, a 12th century mystic uh, philosopher born in Andalusian Spain who ended up in the Middle East. Uh, we'll speak more about him. But he had a number of fascinating contemporaries, one of whom was Maimonides. And um, many people see Maimonides largely as a rationalist philosopher, kind of an interpreter of the Jewish tradition in light of Aristotelian science and Islamic science and the like. Uh, but there are others who claim or say that Maimonides also had a deeply mystical side. What is your view of Maimonides? Apart from the fact he was the greatest Jewish thinker that ever was, yes. so I can't compartmentalize him. If I can sort of correct one yes, please. understanding there, he wasn't a rationalist, he was an intellectual. Okay. And intellectual in the Aristotelian sense with an uppercase I. Okay. And that is, he saw the striving of the human intellect to unite or become close to the divine intellect. And that is a long way from being what we today call a rationalist. He wasn't deductive, he was inductive more. That is, the movement was upward. Was upward. So, and so he, so if you put aside the, calling him a rationalist, he was, he was a pop, you know, it's so interesting, he was a popularizer, but he intentionally made his work esoteric. He is an esotericist. But the question I have when I read Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed uh, with Leo Strauss's introduction and so on, um, there's esotericist in the sense of a deliberate complexity to hide uh, to hide a truth from, from which he could have been persecuted uh, from persecutors and to hide a truth uh, that he thought only deeply aware people could access. But it wasn't clear to me there that the truth that he was concealing was esoteric in the sense of a spiritual esotericism. And I, so when you say he is an esotericist, do you mean that he was not only an esotericist in the sense of a hidden truth, but also that that hidden truth was fundamentally spiritual in purpose and intention? Strauss was from Chicago, wasn't he? The and the Leo Strauss translation, I mean, the center of, ra of modern rational intellectualism, I mean, is deeply influenced by that. I I'd recommend um, ancillary reading to um, that translation. There's an article by David Blumenthal um, on Maimonides, looking specifically at Maimonides as a mystic, oh. studying the Arabic text and using parallels with Islamic, um, Islamic thought, not necessarily Sufi, but certainly um, Islamic mystical, um, mystical sources. So, you know, nobody owns Maimonides, or should I say everybody owns Maimonides, and people find there what they want. That wonderful statement of Maimonides, 
of the state in which the knower, the knowing, and the known are one, as an attribute of the divine to which humans aspire, is about as mystical as you can get. So if we hold Maimonides and Ibn Arabi together, um, how, how do you, in your being as well as in your thought, how do you see these two extraordinary figures, one of whom influenced Islam ever after, the other of whom influenced Judaism ever after, both of whom had an impact on world culture and thought beyond Islam and Judaism? How compare and contrast them? Well, I don't know how much Ibn Arabi influenced Islam. I don't know how much Maimonides influenced Judaism. Uh, essentially, incidentally, yes. I mean, incidentally, Maimonides, Maimonides codified the law without a very direct and clear Jewish theology. Um, but in his esotericism, we find that little passage that I mentioned, the Noah, the knowing and the known one, we find throughout Jewish mysticism, as, as quoted, many of the Jewish mystics seem to have a very ambivalent attitude towards Maimonides. I won't say the ambivalent attitude. There are those mystics who love him and those who hate him. Those of it says the great teacher was right and others who say the teacher was wrong. Uh, and one finds um, both, you know, Michael, I sometimes I try to understand what are the circumstances in which genius falls. Um, is, it, is it random? Well, how can it be random when um, Ibn Arabi, Maimonides, uh, Averroes, Avicenna, Ibn Farabi, um, Yehuda Levi? I mean, there was a golden the, age of uh, there was creativity. Yeah, and what's so extraordinary is that so many of these people were polymaths of unbelievable reach. Um, how could that have all come together in Andalusian Spain, in, and, and many of them virtually contemporaries? How, how could that be? How could it be if, if genius was randomly distributed? It wouldn't make any sense at all. But in clusters. I mean, look at 18th century England, you know, Johnson and Pope and Swift. Um, in the Hasidic movement in the 18th century, in a swath of 70 miles by 20 miles, you got about a dozen absolute geniuses of um, spiritual thought who had shared lineage but often very little in common. And, and then it disappeared within 50 years. I don't think either of us believes that it's random, though. N not random, but from the human eye, random. From one eye? From one eye, yes. From the, from from the skeptical at, eye. Looking at random. the other eye, you know, I think Andalusia was already dying when, I mean, both Maimonides and Ibn Arabi left. Um, it was. For different reasons. As was the Islamic Empire. It was collapsing. Right. And the steamroller of the, what they call the reconquest, but the Muslims call the deconquest, um, um, was taking over. I don't know. It's a marvel. I just, 
I find it a marvel, and I um, I, I don't seek parallels between them because they are um, both polymaths and some of the greatest intellects humanity has known. But they they overlap. But basically, they were they existed within different traditions and proximity to each other. But I don't know how. Um, one of the things Jim Morris, uh, the historian uh, I mentioned to you, I just had a conversation with him earlier today, the great expert on Ibn Arabi. Um, and one of his observations was that he thought that that clustering of, of genius, spiritual and philosophical genius, related to the fact that Andalusia was a place where Jews and Christians and Muslims could talk together, that it was possible. Um, do you share that view? Absolutely. As in 10th century Baghdad it happened, and in various other places it happened. Although it was most definitely a, a hothouse, um, maybe it's the wrong word, a, a rich garden of, um, of, of mutually pollinating flowers, you know. Oh yes, I've, I've no doubt, um, no doubt of that. I was a talk yesterday um, on Islamic and Arabic influences on medieval Hebrew poetry, and it's clear that Yehuda and Levi and uh, Solomon ibn Gbirol, the two greatest medieval Jewish poets, wrote in Arabic. And As then, did Maimonides. Yes, but I mean, what I'm saying here is the 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 that they use the the rhythms and the meters and the assonances and the formal structures of Arabic poetry in writing Hebrew poetry. Wasn't this a case of, of Toynbee's civilizational challenge and response that here these Jewish uh, thinkers, poets, artists, found themselves at, at the cultural height of the Islamic empire, although it was beginning to physically fall apart, but at the cultural height of it, and their Jewish tradition was profoundly challenged by this enormous flowering of Islamic civilization. And it seems to me, um, uh, and in this book I showed you the jewel of the world about Andalusian Spain, it seems to me that that challenge was part of what evoked this flowering of, of Jewish thought as well. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I warned you, I work by free association. Um, theories of Jewish history. For the most part, Judaism has flowered when it was existed within a more highly developed civilization. Yes. And, um, and that only collapsed when they reached the backwaters of the Slavic world in Poland and, and, and Ukraine in the 17th, 18th centuries. And then they were at a higher level of literacy, literacy um, than the ambient um, population. But whether it is in ba Babylon, whether it is in Greece, whether it is in the Rhineland, whatever the Jews had encounter with um, more highly developed civilizations, they absorbed and were enriched by them. I don't necessarily use the word challenge, I'm not a Toynbean, mm -hmm. but um, it's certainly a very interesting part of the development of um, of Judaism. I mean, the encounter with Zoroastrianism, um, with the, you know, first of all, the pain of the exile, and then the input of these Iranian religions deeply enriched post-exilic Judaism. It happened again and again, and of course, Hellenism, 
enormous Hellenism enriched almost everybody it touched, mm -hmm. and certainly enriched the Jewish world as well. And in Andalus, uh, most definitely. We've spoken of this traditionalist school of thought um, that arose between the First and Second World Wars in, in France, uh, the, the earliest René Guénon. Um, the followers after René Guénon um, uh, are not even followers, but the other figures in it, uh, Fritjof Schoen we've, we've talked about briefly, uh, Titus Burkhardt, Ananda Kumaraswamy, others, uh, Martin Ling. Um, Martin Ling was his secretary, by the way. Martin Ling was René Guénon's secretary. Yes, he went That's to. right. Mm -hmm. Went to Cairo to live with his family. Uh, um, beyond Fritjof Schoen alone, what has your encounter been with the whole traditionalist school? Well, Siyad Hossein Nasser has been perhaps the most, my most immediate contact. Professor uh, at George Washington University today. Professor at George Washington and also Sheikh. And Sheikh. And I think I mentioned to you he's known to most of his students as Professor Hossein and, um, and a very small number as Sheikh. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, he carries on with the polymath um, tradition, marvelously erudite, um, astonishingly erudite. Um, apart from one book, which he wrote immediately after 9-11, called The Heart of Islam, um, which was made for popular um, uh, consumption, he, he, he doesn't make concessions to the popular taste, which I think is one of the characteristics of the traditionalists, um, that they are um, profoundly elitist. Now, now, the skeptic, democratic skeptic within me, has difficulty um, with their elitism. With their elitism. On the other hand, um, softly, we're all elitists, aren't we? Or those of us who see ourselves as part of some some elite. Um, the question is. Well, I mean, that's a different question altogether. But um, I found his, um, his writings are sacred knowledge, sacred text, um, nature. Um, his understanding that Europe went wrong with the Renaissance, with humanism. You know, part of me profoundly agrees that the Renaissance was the worst thing that happened. But I don't dare say that with my, my liberal company, um, my liberal friends. Well, this is precisely the point, that the traditionalists believe that the Renaissance, as you said, was the worst thing that ever happened, that the whole disaster, ecological disaster of the West, of, of the world, can be traced back to uh, the secular tradition that emerged from the Renaissance. Yes, except that instead of understanding the human body um, from the way that Aristotle described it, you started using lenses and scalpels and looking inside the human body, uh, you know, in order to, to cure it. I mean, they started using telescopes instead of mirrors. Um, um, 
And of course, it led to the incredible anthropocentric arrogance, arrogance of the um, of humanism and the Renaissance, with its wondrous blessings. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's truly something that I, I only say that the Renaissance was the worst thing that happened with only half an eye, not just one eye, but only I understand half I understand. an eye. But I mean it. Um, but it is a powerful line of thinking. Not, in other words, if we leave aside whether it's true or false, uh, if we leave aside any ultimate judgment on it, it is such a radical departure from the West, uh, rest of, of Western culture to, to say the Renaissance was a mistake. Is it? Isn't the... Um the Catholic Church and its inner cause have been saying that the whole time. Well, actually, that's true. Yeah. I was reading, I was following um, some Catholic articles about Jerome, and they talk about the deformation, not the reformation. And so it, it isn't that isolated. In fact, the um, tradition has found allies within um, Catholicism, I think, um, so here's a question for you. This is the question that, that I ask myself. If one has, for want of a better word, progressive social values, um, is the teaching of the perennial philosophy, which is the core of traditionalist thought, equally accessible to spiritually oriented progressives as it is accessible to spiritually oriented conservatives? Yes. But you want more than that. Um, you know, when I read Torah, and I reach the passage that says, the rebellious son should be stoned to death at the gate, I skip it. I don't feel myself any less a follower and um, a Torah scholar and someone who relates to Torah as a sacred text. The perennial philosophy is not a sacred text. It's a way of relating to sacred texts, a way of relating to tradition in the world. The question of why so many of them were reactionary, I mean, when you talk, hear Fritjof Schoen talking about the value of the caste system, you know, um, give me a break. <laughs> um, You know, I mentioned before, 18th century English writers and 18th century French writers. North of the English Channel, they were all conservatives. Johnson, Swift, Pope. South of the Channel, Voltaire, Rousseau, and others, they're all progressives. It's a kind of a scattering. I just, I don't know. I mean, I live in a time when I, I don't know any Republicans, but there are plenty of them out there. Uh, it's a kind of... Okay, let, 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 me, let me step back to answer your question more seriously. Sometimes I think they go overboard. Sometimes what? They go overboard. I mean, La, Martin Ling's... Who goes overboard? The yeah. traditionalist. Martin yeah. Ling's final mm-hmm. book, uh, in which he was 
ranting and raving against Vatican II and talking about miraculous... And Fritjof Schoen actually went quite crazy at the end of his life, I believe. Yes, um, but was wonderfully sheltered um, by his students. Um, mm -hmm. Let's get back to that in a moment, mm -hmm. but... Um, or maybe it's the same. Martin Ling is wonderfully deferential to Sean even after he felt that Sean had gone off the, the tracks and Sayyid Hussein Nasser as well. And I think it's the most wonderful loyalty and protectiveness. Um, in You know, one of the values of, um, um, of traditionalists that they took from Sufism that I think is extremely important is chivalry. The Arabic word adab, mm -hmm. uh, which is proper behavior in this world. And proper behavior, perhaps, is if your teacher goes nuts. You protect him. You protect him. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all of us love gossip. It's one of, so I said, the gossip is a human desire that... But I don't think one has to love gossip to make an observation. For example, it isn't gossip that Nietzsche went crazy at the end of his life. And it isn't, uh, and so, uh, for me, that's not gossip. It's, I don't offer the observation about Sean that way either, but rather um, to ask, um, to situate a great body of thought in the humanity of these, these philosophers. Okay, I mean, Nietzsche suffered from a bacterial infection that affected the nervous system, right. and it wasn't a matter of anything that he believed in or anything that he practiced that caused that um, decay of the, um, of the brain. Um, one of my literary heroes for the last 30 years has been um, Thomas Pynchon. And I've been every year, he wrote a book almost every 10 years, and it was a, a life breath to read him. His last book was absolutely unreadable. And so I don't discard Pynchon, I just push that book to the bottom of the pile. Of course. Of course. So there's no reason why a great thinker should be at the same level throughout their lives. No, none of us are immune to decay. Yes. Uh, or, or change. Or change. Or different forms of sanity or obsession. So. If we go back to your affirmative answer to my question about whether the perennial philosophy at the heart of all the great religious and spiritual traditions is accessible to progressives as well as conservatives, and if we acknowledge that there's a certain natural resonance between the keepers of the flame in the religious and spiritual traditions and conservatism because by their nature they, they keep the flame, which is often in a conservative social context, then is the, are the two paths of access to the core truth of the perennial philosophy in conservative and progressive traditions are they equally accessible, and is the conservative valence that goes with traditionalism essentially an anthropological, sociological fact that there's just a natural fit there? 
but that for progressives, there's no more conflict than there is for conservatives? Or is there a difference in access to that core truth? Assuming for a moment that it's yeah. a truth. Thank you. Um, progressive and conservative are 20th century yes. terms. Very approximate. Yes, and one needs to retro-project them. Um, and I think when one finds that many of the great mystics were subversives. Were progressives. Subversives. Subversives. That is subversive of the established order. No, they were absolutely subversive. That's true. Yes. And so what Anna Sarah Palin would call all liberals subversive, but there's a way that that is true, that um, to be subversive in a 12th century Flemish convent uh, might mean having very retrograde views of the ritual demands of the church, but it will be fighting against established authority. And so if you see the progressive as that which seeks to subvert, subvert, overturn, change, reform um, the world, then um, I think one has to wipe away this idea of whether it's conservative or not, because it might well be towards towards fundamentalism um, or at least, or very demanding pietism. And so um, Halaj, um, I mean, many of the great Islamic mystics, I mean, they were cautious because they know they could chop off your head or your feet or whatever if you, if you cross the line. But their very presence um, was tolerated, and I can talk about that in a moment, of the relationship between the establishment and the subversive mystic. But I think if we take away this modern uh, concept of conservative and progressive, um, well, that's from, my perspective, from the perspective of your question. Why was Fritz Schoen a, a royalist. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't surprise me that he was a royalist because I see a fundamental, in, in other words, the analysis of René Ganon, of Fritz Schoen, was that there's God and then out of God in Sufi fashion flow a series of revelations to different prophets and these revelations to different prophets lead to these different religious traditions and there's an exoteric shell that is required, a legalistic shell that's required in every legal tradition but at the core of that spiritual tradition is a mystical truth and that mystical truth always lives in tension with the legalistic framework around it. And, the, but, and on the other hand, the legalistic tradition is required to protect the core. So there's a necessary tension. But one also has to look at the processes of, of renewal with, with, within any tradition. I mean, even in the exoteric forms of Judaism, um, the, 
there was a transvaluation of most basic concepts again and again and again. I mean, second century rabbinic Judaism was not like eighth century um, um, Midrashic world, or certainly not the world of of Andalus. Um, there are these transvaluations. What I hate the phrase, but paradigm shifts, but um, great shifts in the understanding occurred again and again as part of a natural evolution. Now, sometimes prior to these changes, there was a decay of the old structure. I mean, being a royalist in France, what happened to the Ancien Regime in France, especially in the church, was a complete decay of the old system. And the French Revolution, with incredible violence, shattered that. And there are still people fighting against it. I mean, just as we were talking about the Renaissance, um, some people complain about the, uh, the French Revolution, especially people in the church. Um, but I don't see it so much as a tension between the exoteric and the esoteric as a balance that has to be explored and honored. Which is what Imanara believed. He absolutely believed it. And, yeah. and that's why he was so faithful to the exoteric forms of Islam. But it wasn't insincere. No, no. It I was mean, an honest uh, belief that this and, and needed to be protected. Yes. And, and Maimonides. And that is one of my problems with many um, modern-day Ibn Arabi um, uh, supporters. That they ignore that aspect of Sharia, of devotion to... Um, to law of some kind, whether it's Jewish halakhic law or, or, or Islamic shar, shar, Sharia law. It isn't, one can't have the fruit without the shell. But I've always seen that, um, you know, the institutions needed the mystics for their creativity. And um, because the mystics are always a source of creativity, at the same time, um, and by, by giving them space, they exerted some form of control against outbursts of antinominium and other forms. And the um, mystics were always a minority and needed the institutions for, for networking. Uh, you know, if you've got, that was before the, before the internet when anybody can reach anybody anywhere, but um, the only way you could reach another Jewish mystic was going to a Jewish library. And I'm um, reading and then writing letters that took three months to get there and back. So the networking was um, the, the, the resources and the, and the control. Let me shift to a, a very different aspect of your life that I've never had a chance to ask you about. Um, as you mentioned, you, you left uh, uh, Britain at an early age. You went to Israel. You spent a great deal of your life in Israel. You have a number of children living in Israel now. Is that what? Four. Four children living in Israel. Um, uh, one in military service? No. Oh, okay. No. My grandson has just finished his military service. That's right. Your grandson just finished his military service. Um, uh, you yourself were in a trench in Suez in 1956, if I remember On, on the Syrian border. On yeah. the Syrian border in 1956. 
56. And at the same time, you are have devoted many years to studying Arabic uh, in your library. Uh, our copies of the Quran as well. You you've studied with uh, 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 a Muslim Imam here, who uh, whose uh, preference for uh, anonymity you honor. Um, we know that these worlds are in collision. How do you hold um, that collision between two cultures, both of which you profoundly value at the deepest level? Imminent, apart from being involved in the peace movement. I mean, that's the simplest answer. But if I can go back Well, that's a very good answer, being involved in the peace movement. So that's a major piece of it. Yes. But is there more to it than that? Yes. Um, I lived in Israel for 26 years, which is a small country in the heart of an Islamic, Arabic-speaking Middle East. And I left knowing a few words of street Arabic with some wonderfully picturesque oaths and curses. And there's nothing like them in any language that I've encountered in that succinct beauty, none of which will repeat for your machine. Um, but uh, I knew nothing of the Arabic language. And most of what was so much I knew about the um, Islamic society was very limited. You know, I just the Oslo Agreement between Palestinians and the um, and the Jews, my opinion, broke down for one simple reason. Broke down because of one simple reason. Uh -huh. It was negotiated by secular Israelis with secular Palestinians. Mm -hmm. There was whiskey drinking, mm -hmm. Palestinians in Beirut and secular Israelis there. Neither side had any understanding of the tradition, mm -hmm. and I would put myself in that class. When I arrived here, it was a time to, to, to examine uh, many things. Um, I've always loved religion. You know, when I was on the way to Dharamsala, um, uh, my friend Nathan Katz, my first day in India, turned to me and said, Jonathan, if you love religion, you'll love India. If you love only your own religion, you'll hate India. And I knew immediately which class I would fall into. And so I have a great curiosity about the... Your, your visit was uh, part of the book, The Jew and the Lotus, yes? Yes. The, the visit of a group of Jewish scholars and uh, inquirers to the Dalai Lama. A remarkable book, yeah. Yes. So. Religion has always been of interest to me. Um, but when I started studying Arabic, various consciousnesses came into play. One was this political one. I'd lived in, a colony isn't the word, but an insert in the Middle East without trying to understand anything of what was going on around in traditional terms. 
Now, I can give you a political analysis of Zionism and the different seven different forms of Arabic nationalism, but that's only at one level. But the level of the Arabic culture, I understood um, um, very little. Um, I also, at the beginning when I first got there, I would say I picked up, I was heard a great deal of kind of simplistic racism about the superiority of the Anglo-Saxon culture as opposed to Middle Eastern culture. Um, so the first step was to start putting that right, was to start learning the alphabet, the ABC of, um, of Arabic. There was another component there which is deeply personal, and that is the relationship of Ashkenazi Jews to Sephardi Jews, Jews of um, European descent, and not just Sephardi, but Jews born in the Orient, um, with the Oriental culture. And which, which were also, that became the Andalusian Spanish Jews as well, the Sephardic. Yes, but I'm not talking about the Sephardic. The Sephardic mostly went to Turkey and to the Balkans. The Jews I'm talking about, those from Iraq, um, Yemen, and the Mizrahim. The Mizrahim being the Orientals. Okay. Now, in, in the 19th century, the Sephardim, the, the exiles from Spain, were aristocrats in Jewish um, society. But um, there was a very small number. But Israel was filled with many immigrants from North Africa who were unlettered, um, and some who, many of them, in fact, who, who were lettered. There was a derision of Sephardi culture. And there was a way in which this realization that one of the greatest sins of Zionism, there have been quite a few, was the way that the Oriental Jews were treated. That Zionism was a creation of European social, social democracy um, nationalism, and it was imposed on the Sephardim, and their culture was... was... I have to ask you this. Was Zionism a mistake? There was a very good Israeli journalist. Um, I can't recall the name for the moment. Who was very left-wing. She lived for several years in Gaza and has an apartment in Ramallah. And she said, were it not for the Holocaust, Israel would be a West European um, colonizing venture in the middle of the Arabic Middle East. But there was a Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was built as a refuge, mm -hmm. as a refuge. Mm -hmm. So did Zionism go deeply wrong in many places? Yes. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, the Jews who came from the East were, were not particularly Zionists, but they, they were brought in for various reasons. You know, it's very easy in retrospect to see one's errors, but how I fell into the contemporary ethos of diminishing the significance of this culture. Well, you know, what's really fascinating to me is I've really come to... Um, to understand at least a little of Ibn Arabi and uh, through Ibn Arabi, the, the Islamic mystical tradition, and through the Islamic mystical tradition, the Islamic tradition. And 
what is fascinating to me is that to this day, there is in the West an extraordinary cultural blindness to the beauty of Islam. It's just extraordinary. And of course, when you read history, this is not new. You know, this blindness has actually been cultivated on both sides. Contenti. Uh, yes. So, but I think one of the things that has drawn me to Ibn Arabi and to uh, the Islamic mystical tradition is precisely a sense that I need to honor uh, the beauty of this tradition because only if we honor it, only if we see it in its fullness, is there any real chance of peace among the children of Abraham. That as long as Christians and Jews even subtly regard themselves as superior to Muslims, which is so widespread, and often well, it's... Christians to Jew, uh, superior to Jews, and Jews are superior to both. Absolutely. But, but that dialogue, the Christian-Jewish dialogue, has been going on for a long time in the West. But the, the, the shadow really lies over Islam. Yes. And, um, and so my experience has just been coming to know it, astonishment at the beauty, as you said about uh, the Sufi, why you find yourself so at home with the Sufi rendition of the perennial philosophy, you said because it's so unencumbered. And I wanted to ask you on that point. Can uh, I just go back for a second? Yes, though? please. This division between East and West, I lived in my psyche. It wasn't intellectual awareness I came to. It was an awareness that in my life I had participated in this and I needed to make some kind of rectification. Right. And my study of Arabic was some kind of what we call tikkun, um, re re rectification. Repairing of the world, yes. Yes, yeah. or repairing of with the fabric. Right. No, it wasn't repairing of the world. It was repairing of what I had done. Mm -hmm. uh, tikkun is preparing the world as a, as a modern concept. Tikkun is just basically a fabric is torn and you sew it together. Mm -hmm. Speaking of how clean the, the unencumbered Sufi vision of the perennial philosophy is, I find that same unencumbered quality in the Bhagavad Gita, in the Buddhist Dhammapada, in some of the Zen tradition as well. Um, I just wonder, and it seems to me that just to take the Bhagavad Gita and uh, the Dhammapada uh, and the Sufi traditions, uh, uh, it seems to me that those are three examples of what I think of as very clean operating systems of, you know, mystical tradition and experience. Do you have that same sense? I don't know. I mean, when I start reading Tibetan Buddhist texts, I am just so astonished and overwhelmed at the complexity of it that you think you've got to the end of a page and say, ah, it's the end of the page. It takes you into another chamber and another chamber and another chamber. So I'm, I'm, I'm not certain. Um, and those are complex, but the Gita is not infinitely complex, is it? But I think some of the commentaries are. Yes, the commentaries okay, are. Okay, but the Gita in itself is a, yeah. is, is a wonderful, is a, is a foundational text, yeah. but I don't know if it is mm -hmm. a, pra a practitional text. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it, it is unencumbered, but I am apprehensive of too much unencumbering it that is stripping it from practice. Um, I, I don't think the Sufi path, I mean, I have deep connections with the Sufi tradition of the West, which tried to separate itself from Islam. But I really reject um, uh, that, that, that entire approach as being um, the traditionalist within me says, you can't do that. It's like going to the supermarket and just picking out the, the ripest plums eating them and spitting the pit on the floor and without going to the, to the till and without paying or without buying a, a kilo of them. Um, I, I think that the essence of mystical Judaism, the essence of mystical Buddhism as far as I know it, the essence of Islam is irrational practice. Practice that is inaccessible to rational analysis or understanding. You do it because it's written in the book. And I think without accepting the supremacy of the sacred text and the tradition embodied within it, I think there's a danger of missing what Ibn Arabi is about. I mean, Ibn Arabi's philosophical ideas are absolutely marvelous. One can get drunk and intoxicated listening to them. But if one does it without awareness, Rumi prayed five times a day. He wrote mystical, the wildest mystical poetry, but he never forgot to pray. Or if he did, Shams reminded him, or, or a friend reminded him. And so it is unencumbered, but it isn't pure. It's, it's pristine in the presentation. It doesn't get lost in its own transmission, the way I think Kabbalah did. You asked about Kabbalah before, I think that Kabbalah forgot that it was a pathway to the one and got entangled in the many, in the tense firot, in the theosophical structure, that they became, instead of a, a door opening into the, the garden with which within which the one, the radiant, splendid one resides, it got stuck in the courtyard. Now it's fascinating, and you can spend many years being lost in that external garden, and I was myself, and one of the reasons I've stopped teaching Kabbalah, because I see people just love that garden too much. But tell you a story, many years ago I wrote a commentary on the Haggadah, on the Passover Haggadah, and I took it to a Passover Seder one evening and I distributed it because it had both the text of the Haggadah and my commentary. And I discovered to my, I don't know how to describe it, but I was deeply disturbed by the fact that people preferred the commentary to the text. Now, it's very flattering that they think that Jonathan Ammerman's commentary is better than a piece of biblical text, but there's something there that there is this great danger that we read the commentaries without reading the text. The text is sacred. It's the pole star. The text is sacred. Jonathan Ammerman, thank you for being with us at the New School. <laughs>